This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth. Welcome to the AJ Bell and Shares Magazine Money and Markets podcast. Coming up on this week's show, I look at why equity markets rallied early this week. And I'll give an update on what's happening to the pound and UK government bonds, given how they were shaken by Quasi Quartend's recent mini budget. And joining me on the show is Laura Souter. Hi there. I'll also be giving an update on expectations for interest rates, mortgages and savings, as well as delving into some new research on pension scams. Now we've got two guests on the show this week. Full-time stock trader Michael Taylor will be here to talk about the problems facing naked wines. And later I'll be talking to fund manager Alec Cutler from Orbis about why the issues investors faced in the 1970s are very similar to today. And we're going to be looking at some important market news regarding Tesco, Greg, Strax and Tesla. But first, let's start with why have equity markets perked up, Dan? Yeah, I mean, on Tuesday, literally all the main indices around the world went ballistic uh, in, in a good way. You know, investors seem to be hoping that central banks are going to follow the leader of Reserve Bank of Australia and slow down the pace of rate hikes. And I think one of the, the sort of the key triggers for this sort of market rally was the latest uh, numbers on US job openings. Now, there was a big drop here. They fell by 1.1 million in August. So I think that's a sort of a classic bad news is good news for the market event. So signs of weakness in the jobs market might cause the US Federal Reserve to be less aggressive with its interest rate hikes. Of course, whatever the US central bank does, other central banks around the world will be watching and thinking, well, maybe should we apply sort of the same thinking? So on, on Tuesday, we saw the S&P 500 up 3.1% in a single day. FTSE 100 was up 2.6%. And in Germany, the DAX was up 3.8%. So those are very, very large movements for a single day. Um, now, if you also look at what's been happening with currency markets, because after Kwasi Kwarteng's mini budget, the pound slumped. But really interestingly, it's recovered all that lost territory and is trading even higher than before that speech caused a big sell-off in the, sort of the currency market. So the market particularly liked the news that the 45% tax cut was going to be, uh, decision is going to be U-turned. And we've also seen UK gilts or government bonds, they've come down uh, in terms of the yield since um, soaring just after that mini budget came out. So by the yields coming down, it means that the cost of the borrowing for the government um, and also the influence on other sort of bond markets is sort of easing. So obviously with this market mania, it's more than simply just about what's happening with stocks and, and bonds. Interest rate expectations have been rising. And of course, that has a knock-on effect to mortgages and savings. So, so let's go through those one by one. So Laura, what, what are we sort of seeing at the moment on the mortgage market? Yeah, so we obviously saw lots of deals were halted last week. Lots of lenders withdrew their offerings um, in that market turmoil, uh, which was quite a shocking time for anyone who was trying to move home or was thinking about moving um, home. Really, that was kind of a short-term reaction to the fact that um, those guilt markets that you just talked about went crazy. And so 
uh, mortgage companies were finding it hard to get an accurate price for the deals because um, they very much uh, go in tandem with the the price of those borrow that borrowing, um, and so they weren't sure how to price deals. So lots of lenders pulled their deals off the market um, and waited until markets had settled down a bit and they could be a bit more accurate on pricing. What we're now seeing is some of those lenders come back to market, particularly, um, for example, Halifax, which is one of the big lenders, has come back to market, but with new rates. And what we've seen there is that rates have increased significantly um, compared to before the mini budget. So um, Money Facts put out some good data that shows on the morning of the speech, of the budget speech, the average two-year fixed rate mortgage deal was 4.74%. Now it has shot up to just shy of 6%. Um, and also if we bear in mind that in December last year, so before interest rate hikes started, that same um, average two-year fixed rate deal was at two and a half percent. So we can see a dramatic increase in borrowing costs there. Um, and then a five-year fixed rate deal has risen uh, by similar amounts. So it's risen from four and three quarter percent up to five and three quarter percent um, over the same period if we look at kind of pre-mini budget to now. So what that means is anyone who is going out to get a mortgage now will be paying much higher costs for it. And what we're also expecting is still, despite markets coming down, the expectations of interest rate rises are still high and we're still expecting them to rise significantly um, going into next year. So that means anyone who is coming to remortgage next year will face much higher costs than today. Um, but to talk about this and lots of other things, we've got David Hollingworth from Mortgage Broker LNC on the podcast next week. So he's going to help pick apart what's been happening in mortgage markets, what to do if you're currently remortgaging or you know you're going to remortgage soon, but also how to handle the market if you're a first time buyer, because it's pretty overwhelming anyway, let alone with these extreme market movements that we're seeing. Um, so that's going to be next week. So if you've got any questions for him, then you can send them in to podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we will get him to answer all of your questions. So of course, if... Um rates are going up there's actually good news if you're a cash saver isn't it so what's been happening with sort of cash savings accounts yeah so we've seen a big increase in cash savings rates um we don't see savings rates rise by as much as mortgage rates do um which is just banks want to charge more for borrowing than they're giving out to people that um, put their savings with them but we have still seen a decent increase in cash savings rates. So if we look way back in December last year, before um, the Bank of England started increasing interest rates, the, uh, the top amount that you could get on an easy access savings account was 0.65%. Um, and now that's risen all the way up to 2.35%. And that's for an easy access account. So um, that's going to be kind of the the lowest rate that you would get, you'll get more from fixing, basically. So that's pretty good for, for an easy access account where you can put your money in whenever you um, take money in and out whenever you want. You can get 2.35%, which is pretty good. But I think the thing that people need to be aware of, um, two things. One, you have to switch to get a better rate. If your money is sitting in a savings account or in your current account, the bank will not automatically pass on those rate rises to you. And so you need to shop around and switch accounts to get more on your savings. But also, secondly, um, 
the people that are offering the organizations that are offering those higher rates were are kind of smaller challenger banks they're not really going to be your big high street banks um, and the brand names that you might have always heard of so it means that you could be putting your savings with a bank that you've never really heard of so for example that top rate of 2.35 percent is from al ryan bank which has been in the uk market for a really long time but lots of people might not have heard of it it's a sharia compliant bank so it works slightly differently with the interest um but you just need to check around make sure that they're covered by the financial services compensation scheme that they're fca registered and if you go to a reputable comparison site um and it's listed on there that should also give you some reassurance um that it is a kind of reliable bank to put your money with. Um, interestingly, the second best option for easy access accounts at the moment is Nationwide, which lots of people have heard of, and they're paying 2.1%. Um, so that's a good option if you're a bit wary of going with a name that you've never heard of. Um, and also, as I mentioned, the, the fixed rate market um, is going like mad and you can get much higher rates in the fixed rate market now. So the top two year fixed rate bonds, so that's locking up your money for two years, will pay you 4.56% a year, which is a massive increase in interest um, on previously. And a one year fixed rate bond pays you 4.2%. So you can get a lot more for your money by locking up. Um, you just need to be conscious that we're expecting interest rates to rise. And if interest rates do rise during that time and you've already locked in a rate, you're not going to benefit from that. So you just need to bear that in mind. For some people, they might think, OK, well, locking in for one year at 4.2 percent, that's worth it. And then I can see where rates are at next year. Some people might want to hold on until early next year and see how much more those fixed rate deals rise. Um, what's also interesting, which I think we're also seeing in the mortgage market, is that five year rates are about the same as two year rates. Normally, the logic is the longer you lock up your savings rate for, um, the better the rate you'll get. But actually, they're kind of um, going a bit in sync at the moment. It's the same um, so there's no benefit of locking up your savings for five years at the moment. And that's because rates are expected to rise, but then they are expected to fall again. Um, and so that five year rate has to kind of second guess what's going to happen during that time. I did see that Barclays was offering 5% um, savings up, up to £5,000. But there was lots of terms and conditions with this. You had to become a member of some one of its fancy schemes where you pay five pounds a month um to do something I, it's one that i haven't got the, the details to hand i just noticed the other day so I, I wonder whether we're now going to see more of these sort of bigger name brands that you that are, are sort of household names uh, in the banking industry come up with clever ways to try and attract people but as always you've got to understand all the terms and conditions it's a bit like i remember those days where um you know current accounts used to give you know pretty generous interest rates but there was always some ifs and buts and you know you had to do certain things to to get that money yeah i think the the santander one two three account was one of the biggest examples of that and loads of people had that at the time but you had to kind of have a certain number of direct deb debits coming out of it you had to have your salary paid into it um and i think you're right i think we'll see more of those kind of offers coming to market from some of the bigger banks but you have to keep on top of kind of all of those rules and you have to weigh up particularly for accounts where you have to pay for them you have to weigh up whether you're making enough extra in interest to to justify that um but let's shift to company news now so 
We've got the latest news from Tesla and they've been disappointing investors, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, the shares took a real tumble at the start of the week after the company missed expectations for car deliveries. Um, now, this is only one quarter's uh, worth of sort of deliveries. And I think it was about four or five percent uh, miss versus expectations. What what it's sort of saying is, is it was finding it really hard to secure vehicle transportation capacity and also a reasonable cost. But you know, the, the market seems to be so short term and everything. So, you know, a, a mere three months worth of operations um, was enough to basically kick the share price down nearly 13 percent over a five day period. So, um, you know, that's that's a pretty nasty hit. And don't forget that a lot of people now own Tesla shares. It's so popular with sort of retail investors. Uh, you know, and if that's not enough drama for Tesla boss Elon Musk, we've also had the news that he's now going to buy Twitter again after trying to pull out. So there was a there was sort of a, a courtroom showdown scheduled with Twitter for the 17th of October. But uh, I did see some sort of comment that you know, he might not have a very good chance trying to scrap this acquisition so so as as we record this now it looks like he's going to buy it again so let's uh you know as with everything to do with elon musk um it's all entirely unpredictable and who knows what will happen tomorrow i think he sent out a very cryptic tweet didn't he about it that no one really understands but we await to see what it means um We've had quite a few kind of consumer-facing companies update the markets recently, haven't we? Um, should we start with Tesco's? Yeah, I mean, so Tesco's has reported a fall in profits and said full-year earnings are going to be at the lower end of its previous guidance. So, you know, people are still going to be going to its supermarkets and buying food and drink. Uh, but I think what it's saying is that, that customers are really watching their spending. So we're seeing more own label products being bought rather than those sort of more expensive well-known brands and of course tesco it's had competition from discounters aldi and lidl for quite some time but aldi's really making waves and it's recently overtook morrison's to become the fourth largest uk supermarket so so tesco's has got this issue where customers are sort of looking to try and save money where possible buy cheaper things it's got really intense competition energy and and wage costs are going up and you know i just think that we're going through this sort of change with consumer spending habits and it's not quite sure where that will you know happen next so quite cautious there but i think this is this is a different message per company so you can't say that all, all consumer companies are having trouble because what greg's has done is come out and said actually you know, we had a slight dip, but things are actually holding up all right. September's been pretty good. And that triggered a 10% jump in its share price in a single day. Now, to me, that's quite surprising. Because I thought, if if you're looking to save a bit of cash, do you really need to go and get you know, that coffee or a sausage roll? If you're at work, surely you could take a packed lunch in. But you know, apparently not. It seems to be we're still sort of happy to sort of get those small little treats. But then you've got a company like tortilla mexican grills so selling burritos now it had a, a stonking profit warning and this was more to do with um costs were going up that's the real thing that's eating into its sort of it profits it's a difficult environment if you are a consumer facing business at the moment and um you know one can only speculate that it, it could get even worse as we go on and i wonder whether that because some of that greg's uplift is people kind of trading down from the likes of 
tortilla or others like it where you might spend a lot on a lunch whereas Greg's is a slightly more budget option so maybe it's benefiting from that yeah I mean eight quid for a burrito versus one pound twenty for a vegan sausage roll I mean um I don't know whether brainer yeah well it may not be as satisfying to go for the Greg's option but yeah you're you're right it is but but equally some people who are the the base sort of level has been shopping at Greg's they might say it is just too much. I can't justify that. It's certainly not on a sort of a regular basis. So, um, you know, I, I walked past a couple of Greg stores at weekends. There's still plenty of people in them, um, but I guess it's you know the the volume of customers may not be the same as them. The volume of goods being bought, we might see sort of people being a bit more selective about what they're getting. Yeah, that's definitely what we've seen in um, supermarkets, isn't it? Um, but finally, it's probably worth touching on energy producer Drax, which has found itself the target of unwanted attention and an unwanted TV show, I'm sure. Yeah. So this was on a couple of nights ago on BBC. It was sort of a documentary about they, they wanted to see where Drax was getting sort of the sort of the, the raw materials to make wood pellets, which it then puts into um, its you know, to power it's um, electricity generation. So it takes wood pellets and burns them in its power stations. Now, the Drax said it's it's you know, the source of its materials are normally offcuts from timber yards. So, it's, you know, little waste material that you can't use. Imagine you see a tree um, and it gets the, the size cut down into sort of um, a shape that it might then be used for a, a big um piece of wood that will go into you know say house building or, or furniture making these tiny little bits off the side so that's what drax takes he also also has sort of disease trees as well that you can't reuse really for um construction purposes but this bbc program had a, you know, they were sort of snooping in on its stockpiles and they and they said look all those you know a great chunk of their trees it's got they're ready to to turn into wood pellets they look like they're really good quality and so they've done some investigation about the source and and they were, you know, the BBC is sort of alleging that, that you know, Drax is cutting down wood from primary forests and um, and it shouldn't be doing that. So Drax has come out and said, you know, we're going to consider our action against the BBC. Um, but you know, as from a stock market perspective, shares are down 8% since that programme went out. And I wonder if people are thinking, well, hang on, I, I, I bought these shares because Drax is meant to be really good at ESG. It's it's making renewable energy. It's doing things the right way. But actually, if you're now telling me it's some of its raw materials that are not quite what it, it was sort of set out to be, this is not really as good as corporate systems I want. So maybe I'm going to sell those shares. So I think this is an ongoing thing, but it's you know, if you haven't seen it, it's worth watching on um sort of a, a catch up on, on the iPlayer. It was a very interesting program. And Drax was on there talking about what they're doing, but you know their their sort of statement afterwards in response to the publication, of, you know, the broadcaster program was pretty damning. They were not very favourable about BBC's um, journalistic approach. <laughs> so let's move on to a very important topic. Sadly, scams continue to disrupt many people's lives, and you know I've certainly seen an increase on my phone in the last few days of keep getting these messages saying oh, you're eligible for a discounted energy bill, but it's clear that that's got to be a scam. So I think it's not just about the energy market. Pensions have been a big target for scammers. And you know the FCA constantly looks at this area. It's now put out some new research. So Laura, what, what does it find this time? 
So particularly it's concerned about the cost of living crisis, meaning that people's budgets are stretched and them looking for ways to kind of bolster their income or to dip into savings pots. And the FCA has warned about this. Um, it, it did some research and it found that a quarter of savers would, would draw pension savings to cover the cost of living, but that makes them very vulnerable to scammers. And sadly, what we see whenever there's kind of... Um, vulnerable people or an opportunity scammers will pounce on it so we saw this a bit in the pandemic with people struggling or with scammers setting up claiming to be you know part of the government support schemes um, and then scam people out of money and I think the regulator is worried that that's going to happen again but with the current cost of living crisis because there'll be more people out there who are desperate to get their hands on some money and so um, the SCA has warned about things like people offering a free pension review. Um, so its research found that almost half of over 40s with a pension would take up the offer of a free pension review. But actually, that's often the way that fraudsters first get in. And it means that they um, get you to hand over some details about yourself and then they go from there, say that they're going to invest your pension somewhere else, for example, and actually um, take the money off you. And so um, the FSA is just very concerned and wants people to be very aware of anyone kind of approaching them out of the blue to talk about their pension, um, any kind of unsolicited emails or texts that you get offering to do this, anyone who's offering a really high return on your pension or helping to release cash from your pension, even if you're under the age of 55, because that is likely to be a scam. And you'll also be hit with a very high tax penalty from HMRC if you do release money. So I think it's just a, another reminder to be aware to if you get any kind of calls or offers out of the blue, even if they're claiming to be from a reputable source, is to kind of think twice. Um, a good logic is always to take down the details, say that you'll call them back and then speak to a family member or a friend about it and they will help you kind of sense check whether it is a scam or whether it's kind of a genuine call from your pension provider. Um, it's always a good idea if you get a call from someone claiming to be from your pension provider to hang up and to call back on a number that you find kind of on your documentation from your pension provider. Um, little checks like that, but also to kind of raise alarm bells with older people who might be more vulnerable um, and kind of remind them of the need not to respond um, to, to kind of requests that come out of the blue. I think that's that's very wise words. I, I certainly know you think, OK, I don't having to call back someone to check to see who they are. You know, they might get angry and think that you, know, you wasted time. But I've seen this with banks. They're very used to it. They, and then, in fact, they probably encourage you to if you say, I'm not sure who you are can i just check and i'll call you on the sort of the main number um you know th they certainly won't get angry with you they want to make sure that you're obviously you're safe and, and if it is from them they'll talk it through and of course what would the, the purpose of that as laura says is to try and sort of work out whether you've got some person pretending to be someone else or not so yeah please please do be very careful and um obviously you know sadly with these sort of when when it looks like the economy is going to go through sort of harder times we're probably going to see even more of these scams. So yeah, do be very careful out there. So if we think back to the 1970s, which I'll admit was a little before my time, but um, we had high inflation, we had rising interest rates, and we had difficult times all round for investments. Yeah, that does sound an awful lot like today. It does. Yeah. Alec Cutler from Asset Manager Orbis has studied 
the 1970s to see if there's any lessons we can learn and apply to the present day. And he joins us now on the podcast. So, Alec, how similar was the 1970s to what we're seeing now? It's scarily similar. Uh, and if we look at that era, the first thing I would mention is one, I have I have a little bit of street cred because I was a, a kid back then. Uh, and I remember uh, waiting in line for our when it was our turn to go get gas. Um, and I remember my, my dad being in and out of work several times in the 70s. Uh, that's I was young enough where that's what I thought normal was. Um, so it's a pretty depressing environment. But if you if you just look at the 1970s, what we had back then, uh, we had um, a period of policy experimentation. You've heard that term recently. But we went off the gold standard in the early 70s. And from then, the guardrails were off. So the, the central bankers were really winging it, uh, which reminds me a little bit of the post-2009 um, period. We had very high uh, monetary stimulus coming into the end of the 1970s, similar to today. We had politicians, particularly Rick, Richard Nixon, who were completely intolerant of recessions. I don't know if that reminds you of anything today. And we had a very strong labor movement in the in the 1970s. Today we have uh, labor unions are as popular in surveys as they were in 1965. And we had, uh, obviously in the 1970s, we had geopolitical unheaval, uh, which is again, very similar to today. If you look at Ukraine or Taiwan or the Middle East, um, and you had supply constraints on commodities, again, very similar to today. You had a, um, a central banker who at the time, Arthur Burns was really central banker to the world, who was stuck between a, a rock and a hard place, fighting inflation, and at the same time trying to keep an economy intact, which is just about where we're headed now with the, with the Federal Reserve, ECB, or, or Bank of England. Now, that's, um, those are the similarities. What I think is, um, is perhaps more interesting is what's the starting point relative to them? So if you say, you know, looks like we're looks like we're a little bit screwed because the, the periods look so similar, the launching off point becomes important. And if you look at today versus 1971, say, we have much, much higher debt loads. We have equity valuations that are much higher. We have interest rates that are much lower as a starting point. And we have a much greater wealth gap. And I think this last one doesn't get enough play, but you can, the seventies was a time of, um, of great social upheaval that largely came from the setup. You know, when there's, when there's grit in the system and, uh, and the pie is small, people fight over the pie and, um, uh, and you have conflict. The setup for conflict within societies today is much, much higher than it was then in this this greater wealth gap is, is probably the um, uh, the way to measure that most easily. So in terms of if you, for someone who is um, investing at the moment, they're looking back to the 1970s and say, okay, clearly there's similarities. What can I do that worked then now with my investment portfolio? Perhaps is there sort of obvious places that they could sort of switch allocation to certain asset classes, for example? 
Yeah, I mean, history doesn't repeat; it rhymes, and and every period is different. Every industry is is different, um, both from a from a fundamental standpoint and from a starting point standpoint. But um, Schroeder's did an interesting study last fall when we first started looking at the 1970s. We were able to to dig up a Schroeder's piece that looked at the different asset classes during uh, different periods. So Goldilocks, disinflation, reflation, and stagflation. And just as a, as a launching off point for us, taking a top-down look at the portfolio and how it would behave if the, if the current uh, environment, which was a very much a Goldilocks, the, the last 15 years uh, minus the last year, uh, really would have been described as, a, as Goldilocks. Um, flipping into deflation, you know, where should we, where should we, we be focusing our research this time last year? And um, if you break those areas down, the, the top performing sector during stagflation, so this is any period post-1973, and stagflation, as a reminder, is, um, is high, in, high inflation and low growth. Uh, although the you, you see the um, set the Fed and the U.S. administration subtly trying to change that and call that growth recession, which is uh, <laughs> they're doing anything possible to not utter the the phrase stagflation. But let's call it what it is: uh, stagflationary in periods. The the top performing asset class is gold at twenty two percent per annum on average. Commodities fifteen percent per annum on average. REITs or real estate, uh, 6.5%. And uh, T-bills, T-bills and treasuries basically flat, which is somewhat interesting because you think of, of inflation as being treasury killers but you, you, uh, and bond killers. But you need to recall that those bonds, depending on how long they last and what the duration is, you know, they revolve, uh, they, they roll over into a, into a higher yield. So it's, it, you don't really get hammered if you have a long period of persistent stagflation. And then the, the loser would be um, US equities at a minus 1.5. So, um, and again, betting, getting back to the starting point and how, we're, how we've um, crafted the portfolio, looking at equities and US equities in particular, that diving board is now the 10 meter tower. If you think about where we're starting from. So high multiples, very high margins. So the margins of U.S. equities have never been higher than they than they have been over the last year or so. So really long way to fall. And now you have negative earnings revisions. So turbo bad setup, if you will, high valuation and negative momentum. That's about as bad as you can get. Uh, so equities, I think, are in a in a significantly worse starting place going into this deflationary period. Than uh, than they have on average. Now you mentioned gold. Obviously, gold's not really done that well in the last sort of year and a bit. Um, is it perhaps just idly waiting, and then we could see another sort of spurt forward if the situation doesn't, you know, the backdrop doesn't improve? Gold has been has been very disappointing, and if you when you analyze that, it really comes down to the strong dollar. And if you recall, prior to the strong dollar, it was why would you buy gold when you have Bitcoin or as the uh, 20-something say, gold is, uh, is my grandfather's uh, inflation hedge. Uh, Bitcoin is where it's at and crypto is where it's at. So crypto has gone away. But 
the US dollar is the last surviving approved defensive, can't lose, no one's gonna argue with you if you're long the dollar asset class. And the dollar is the, is the opposite of gold. Uh, but in fact, if you, if you look at gold in just about any other currency, gold has been uh, the second best uh, performing asset class after, after energy. So what, so in terms of um, in your, your fund, how have you positioned equities? Obviously, if you're thinking that US equities are um, looking extremely vulnerable at the moment, is, are you sort of looking elsewhere in the world for, for opportunities or you simply, you actually have a very low exposure to equities full stop? We're, we're, we're material underweight equities overall. Uh, in part because what we're restricting ourselves to are energy, uh, are sorry, equities that are uh, cheap from a valuation standpoint versus history in an absolute sense, have reasonable or low low margins. So the margins you're not on the ten meter tower anymore. You may be on the on the three meter springboard from how far you can drop from a margin perspective, um, and you have uh, positive earnings revisions. So to put a, a name on it, something like a, a Shell or a Schlumberger uh, energy stocks, the energy stocks, if you look at them, are, are selling for very cheap valuations. Their margins are still recovering. They're still lower than they were five, six years ago, recovering from, from COVID. And the earnings revisions keep going higher. The analysts who generally do not want to own these names are being dragged, kicking and screaming to increase their uh their expectations for earnings. So if we can find equities that do that, uh, and we can build an entire portfolio of them, uh, that's basically what we've built in our, in our equity positions. And I mean, what happened to cure the problems of the 1970s? Do you think it would be the same solution now? It, it's unclear. I mean, the, the one difference, so arguably the one positive difference between this session in, in stagflation and the 1970s, and, and in theory, it's a huge advantage, would be that all of the central bankers that are in charge today wrote their grad school and, and doctoral thesis on the 70s. They know it really well. And, you know, you could say that that means that they have these great toolkits and they know what to do and they can figure it out. But I think what that misses is they weren't around in the 70s. Many of them weren't around in the 70s. They don't see the dynamics involved. So you can have a great plan. And as Mike Tyson says, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So uh, Powell's plan might be to drive interest rates up super high, like uh, um, like we did in the in the early 80s, and uh, he's going to be Volcker too, and he's going to snuff out inflation, um, come hell or high water, no matter what happens to um, the economy and unemployment. But he hasn't been punched in the mouth yet by every congressman and, and, and senator in the United States and the Biden administration. But just watch what happens when unemployment starts ticking up or when the trade unions start complaining to, um, to their senators uh, about their memberships dropping. That's when it gets real. And, um, you know, lots been made of the, of the a weak need um, Federal Reserve in the, in the early 70s, you know, but, but that was a real environment. That was an environment where they were getting 
punched in the face constantly saying we have a recession needed to deal with that don't care about inflation that's might be that might be what we're headed to now so that was Alec Cutler from Orbis Global Balanced Fund. Um, we've got time for one more segment on the podcast, and it's about a company which provides products that many of us enjoy. Yeah, so we're talking about naked wines here. So shares in the company have fallen nearly 90% over the past 12 months. Now, for a business that sells wine online, the scale of that share price reaction might seem alarming given that it's just selling a popular product so i thought it was worth exploring what's caused that market slump um before i start it's just worth just giving a background some people might not know this business so naked wines was acquired by majestic wine in 2015 as a way for the wine retailer to strengthen its position online so since then Majestic's wines physical shops and brand have been sold so what's left is just the naked wines business over covid times you know lots of people were stuck at home happy to be ordering in the wine uh, but since then it's not quite gone to plan so joining me on the podcast today is a full-time stock trader michael taylor you can see him on twitter under the handle shifting shares so michael thanks for, thanks for joining us you, you, you know as far as i can see you you've got uh, quite a big interest in this stock thanks dan yeah thanks for having me on um i do yes so i am short naked wine stock so therefore i've got an interest in it going down i guess but uh an interest nonetheless yeah, I, mean, I think it's probably worth just pointing out for shorting means you, you, if the sh- if the share price does go down, anyone short in that stock will profit from it. So um, it, exactly. shorting, yeah, shorting is not suitable for everyone. Um, it's it's extremely high risk, but it's it's good that uh, you know we've got the disclosure from Michael that that's his current position. So um, yeah, what, I mean, what what is what has gone wrong here? Is it just a case of the strategy of you know, people prepay? For some wine, Naked Wines takes that money and and helps fund production costs for winemakers, and you get access to lots of sort of different independent winemakers. Is, is that model broken, or is it just something that the business has done to to, you know, to cause this big share price decline? I think it's like anything, isn't it? There's always booms and busts, and during the COVID rally, you know, we had all sorts of things like made furniture. They listed off the back of, you know, bumper results and it's looking like it's going to go insolvent now. Uh, So we had a lot of COVID floats. This actually wasn't a COVID float, but it did get the same tailwind effect of, you know, everyone spending money on wine or furniture or or whatever that they've been given this free money with. Um, There was also some dude in the US who called it the Netflix of wine. Uh, So it got a lot of hype into the business and at the time it had great CACs for, for acquisition. You know, they were spending uh, a pound and, and getting multiples in return of, of lifetime custom. Um, that's now changed. So advertising is a lot more expensive. Now the CACs have risen. Not only that, the long-term value of the customers declined because, you know, people are, are spending less, you know, it's not exactly uh, a secret that, Consumers are spending less. We're seeing the figures out of everything, whether it comes to eating out, um, buying things online. You know, a lot of e-commerce businesses are now seeing uh, headwinds and, and downtrends of, of customer sales. So it, it's that effect unwinding. I think one of the things that 
uh, has been sort of spooking investors in recent months is we've got um, a big shareholder, Punch Card Capital, got one of its representatives on the board. But three weeks later, there was an announcement saying that this person had had left the board, but no explanation. Um, and then we had the founder of Naked Wines and 2.9% shareholder, Rowan Gormley, said he'd, he'd had to come back for two to three months work advising the company. Um, and then also the company, you know, Naked Wines was saying, you know, don't worry about the state of our credit facility. And of course, that makes people really worried. So I think, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so we've got you know, big, big unanswered questions about what on earth is going on in the boardroom where you've got uh, a non-exec director arriving and then leaving almost straight away. What is going on with the sort of the financial status of the business? And what is it that Rowan Gormley is needed to be coming back to the business? So, of course, we've got, the next trading update comes on the week commencing the 17th of October. So, Michael, you got any idea of what on earth they could be announcing then? Um, I don't know. Um, I would imagine trading hasn't recovered. But if you look at the the RNS uh, and Pratham, his appointment from Punch Card Capital, if you look at the details, it actually says Punch Card Capital has agreed not to trade in Naked Wines shares during any period when company insiders are also restricted. Uh, so you can assume that as a non-executive, he will be classed as an insider. Now he's left after three weeks. So is Punch Card Capital now allowed to sell? I mean, they could also be allowed to buy. Um, but, you know, that is just one thing. If you, if you read between the lines, maybe they actually wanted to exit the position. Uh, so he left, so he would no longer be classed as an insider. Um, and they're now allowed to sell. But that is just... You know, um, subjective on my part. It's not. It's not a fact. Um, nobody really knows. Um, so it's just a guess. Um, but yeah, my my belief, and as you say, when when people say, "Don't worry about this," it immediately makes you worry. It's like when a company talks about uh, covenants or a strong balance sheet. Usually, the balance sheet isn't strong. It's you know propped up with intangibles or something like that. Um, but yeah, this this update will be quite critical for the company. Uh, Rowan Gormley, I guess, is probably quite worried about his shareholding, so he's agreed to come on as an advisor. Uh, but yeah, nobody really knows apart from what is in the RNS. So I think obviously an RNS is a as a term used to describe official stock market announcement, and and I think when we get this trading update. Um, whether trading has been okay, resilient or not, I, th I think actually the key things people are going to be looking at are, you know, what is the state of its, um, you know, banking facilities? Is it having to renegotiate this debt? And also, it's, it's been sitting on so much inventories. I think, you know, is it having to sort of sell stockpiles of wine at cheap prices just to clear, you know, clear its stores and um, try and raise a bit of cash? I mean, you know, th there's so much going on with this stock, isn't there? Yeah, well, that, that is a good point, actually, uh, because if you look on the website, uh, the company says the cash is protected by the ultimate parent guarantee. Um, I, I don't actually know what that means, um, but it also states the cash is invested in funding new wines and winemakers. So it's not actually ring-fenced. Um, and if you look at the... Uh, yeah, basically, all it would take is for people to start withdrawing their cash, and that would affect the company's cash, and that would affect the company's ability to fund new wines and winemakers. So I did see there was a clearance sale on the site recently, 
Um, and that would be a good way for the company to try and turn inventory into cash. But it, on the other side, it could also be a, a normal seasonal sale. So you can't read too much into these sort of things. Yeah. So we've got this announcement week commencing 17th of October. I think that is going to be crucial for the for the share price. And we'll talk about what happened in that announcement on a future podcast. So, Michael, thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure. So that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where David Hollingworth will be talking about everything that's going on in the mortgage market. And do send in any questions that you have for him to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.